What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth, and justice, believers in peace, freedom, and the American way. It is Wednesday, first hour of our program time for Middays with Mark, Congressman Mark Pocan, the co-chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus, the uh, U.S. congressman representing the 2nd District of Wisconsin. You can tweet him at rep, as in representative, R-E-P, rep, Mark Pocan, and his website, pocan.house.gov, pocan.house.gov, congressman. Welcome. Oh, and, and just for all of our listeners, uh, Congressman Pocan, Middays with Mark means he's here for the whole hour taking your calls on pretty much any topic you want. Um, Congressman, welcome back. Thanks, Tom. Glad to be here. So I understand Marco Rubio has uh, done a uh, small uh, open mouth insert foot thing. It doesn't seem to be getting anywhere near the publicity. I think it should. Yeah, I mean, you know, Marco Rubio made the mistake of uh, saying something Honestly, <laughs> and uh, it got a lot of play around the GOP tax scam bill, and now he's trying to walk it back, and, and they're very uh, unhappy with him and others who don't uh, say that somehow this is the uh, economic boon for the middle class because everyone knows it's not and never was intended to be. Uh, there's a little, a little, little bit uh, in there for working families. Uh, in 10 years, it completely goes away. Uh, they keep the corporate tax cuts. Uh, they keep the tax cuts for the wealthy, and 83% of the money uh, in 10 years will go to the top 1% or 2% of people. Uh, and he said that that's the deal. Basically, it's not going to help the middle class. And, uh, you know, th this is the only thing they have done this session. They're trying to point to something, and they want to, of course, hide the fact that this was really done for their donors, as other Republicans previously have said. But, uh, you know, once again, Marco Rubio said that, now trying to reel it back. But uh, the best part, Tom, is, again, people are way smarter than politicians think they are. Uh, they've already understood that this is not something going to benefit them. And, uh, in fact, just was a poll, small business owners are saying this isn't going to benefit them either. Uh, this is just for the ultra-wealthy. Yeah, yeah, remarkable. And, and the fact that Marco Rubio would, would own up to that, um, I, I, is he walking back that comment now? Yeah, he is. He, uh, um, of course. Uh, of course. Uh, of course. <laughs> he was candid and honest. Yeah. He can't be a Republican and be candid and honest. Yeah. And, and meanwhile, next week, we've got a big net neutrality event happening, and it's, uh, part of it is going to be happening where, where you live and work, I mean, or, you know, in Congress. Um, tell us about that. So there's a big day of action uh, a week from today, actually, because today's the second, right? Yeah, mm -hmm. so a week from today, the ninth, um, in the Senate, uh, Senator Markey of um, Massachusetts and others are trying to push a vote to uh, overturn the, the decision by the FCC on net neutrality, which essentially is keeping the Internet uh, to stay free and open. Um, you know, President Obama, under his tenure, the FCC uh, put some guidelines in that said you can't block websites, you can't slow down websites, you can't charge companies for access. Internet fast lanes, in other words, uh, local businesses would have the same access as Amazon. Uh, of course, Donald Trump uh, changed that with his FCC, and now uh, all sorts of folks are affected, and the Senate actually is within one vote of being able to overturn that. So uh, there's a lot of action around that. Twenty-three attorney generals in states uh, across the country have uh, sued over this, uh, but we need to be even more active. You know, in my office, Tom, I think before I've, I've reported 6,400 people contacted me in the first three weeks and no one uh, against it. I, I have updated numbers now. 12,983 people uh, against the decision. No one for it. 
Literally, no one. no one has called your office and said, I'm all in favor of Comcast not not having nope. net neutrality, but being able no to read all my emails? Executive, no Verizon executive, no Comcast executive, because those would be the only people who are going to benefit, right? Yeah. No one. So it's such a skewed issue. Uh, this is something we really should be able to win on. So I think, you know, whatever activities people can do in the U.S. Senate between now and uh, June when a vote's going to happen, uh, we're really close on this one. Yeah. And I also have a question about the, the DOJ and this apparent cover-up by uh, Congress, Nunes, and his buddies. But uh, in all probability, one of our listeners will call and ask that question, and the lines are already halfway full here. So uh, let's, shall we pick up some phone calls? Is that all right with you? Sure. Yeah, let's all do right, that. Great. Yeah, be great. David in Greenfield, California. You're on the air with Congressman Pokia. Thank you for taking my call. <clears throat> sure. Um, I believe in our country's checks and balances. Donald Trump seems ready to end the Iran nuclear treaty. Would Trump only need to use the AUMF to start another never-ending war in the Middle East? Or would Trump need to get congressional approval to start a war in Iran? Good question. Well, uh, good, yeah, great question, David. Uh, it's kind of two issues, and while they may relate, let me address each of them quickly. Uh, one, I think he has until May 12th on the Iran agreement. I was one of the, our whip team on the Democratic side trying to make sure we got that in place. We don't want more nuclear weapons, period. And uh, I think it would be very uh, unwise of the president to not continue that agreement. If he does, uh, you know, Iran very likely could go about uh, trying to put together uh, nuclear weapons, and then we're going to have all sorts of other problems. So that's one. Secondly, uh, right now, every president since 9-11 uh, has, uh, in my opinion, probably uh, overused the authority under the former AUMF that was created uh, that uh, allows them to go into uh, other interventions around the world. The Constitution says it's up to Congress, except for self-defense, uh, because of this very loose AUMF that was done post-9-11, uh, every president has used it, uh, and each time I think a little more broader than they should. And while there's some conversations in the Senate of having a new one, because we've had this conversation in the House, what they do could be uh, still open-ended, and that would be a terrible idea. And then that would give the president some hook, some reason to do something, whether it be Iran or anywhere, and you wouldn't have the, the constitutionally required uh, authority coming from Congress. So um, they're related, but they're also they're two separate issues that we're dealing with. It seems to me, Congressman, that the only times that we've actually declared war have been when we went to war against white Europeans, when we bombed the crap out of brown people, um, whether it's in Central America, whether it's in Grenada, whether it's in, in uh, Africa, where it's in the Middle East, uh, whether it's in Asia, Vietnam, uh, Korea, 1950. Um, we, we seem not to need a declaration of war. Am I seeing something here that's not there? But you're seeing a pattern by our interventions. Um, I would just argue, you know, the people who wrote our Constitution clearly uh, wanted it to be the power of Congress, and yeah. I'm guessing it's because we also are the closest to the people. And uh, every time you do something that takes it away from us, sometimes members of Congress like that, right, because they don't want to have to make a tough decision. So uh, definitely that is a part of the problem, Tom. Um, but also every uh, president, especially since this last AMF, has used it pretty broadly to just ignore Congress because, let's face it, we are more dysfunctional these days, and they're trying to do something quicker and easier. But uh, the Constitution wasn't written to be quick and easy. It was done to be very thorough. And I think that's why we're trying to get a new AUMF that uh, brings us back to the power happening within Congress, except for self-defense. Right. Russ in Hickory Hills, Illinois. Russ, thanks for listening to WCPT. You're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Yeah, Mr. Pocan, maybe I'm overstating this. Did you ever think when you got in Congress that the United States could be more isolated than North Korea? I mean, when he pulls out of the Iran deal, just to be honest, the Europeans are going to turn their back. He's pulled out of the climate. He's pulled out of TPP, NASA. Don't forget, North Korea was told by China, don't bury them if they use their nukes. I mean, it's just like this Republican Party is just out to end any kind of relationship with anybody. Am I overstating it? Because these guys don't want nobody to be their friends, it seems like. I, you know, I think, Russ, you're bringing up a really great observational point uh, with this president. It's one thing uh, to be America first. It's another thing to be America only. And I think, you know, this isolationism that this president's putting out there isn't done based on things like keeping jobs in America and having good quality jobs worldwide, having it on good standards. It's done out of xenophobia, right? Much of what he's doing is because, uh, you know, as Tom was saying earlier, our problem with some wars, if there's people who have different colored skins in some areas, uh, you know, this president has been far quicker to do things 
that make us even more isolationist. And uh, I, I guess I never thought that in a global era where everything is being more connected globally that we would be in a retreat as much as we are with this president for all the wrong reasons. Yeah, certainly seems so. We're talking with Congressman Mark Pocan. It's Middays with Mark here on the Tom Hartman program. Every Wednesday, the first hour, he comes on and answers your questions for the hour. And uh, he, uh, he, Congressman Pocan, by the way, is the co-chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus. He represents the 2nd District of Wisconsin of the U.S. House of Representatives. His website, pocan.house.gov, and you can tweet him at Rep. Mark Pocan. Give him a shout and say hi. We'll be right back. It's Talk Media for the Sane Among Us, the Tom Hartman program, our Middays with Mark, our Congressman Mark Pocan taking your calls for the hour. Dan in Omaha, Nebraska, you are on the air with Congressman Pocan. Oh, thank you for taking my call. Uh, Congressman po uh, Pocan, I've uh, got a problem here. I took American history in high school. I took American history in college. And when it comes to discussing FDR and the regulatory uh, people, one of them was the FCC, and the FCC was a regulatory uh, commission to take care of the industry, not to you know help them, but to help the public. And as I see this net neutrality being uh, threatened, I see that all of a sudden, instead of the FCC regulating the industries, it's now regulating us, telling us how much uh, of the net we can have now. And I wonder why people haven't thought of that. I mean, it is a regulatory uh, organization. It's not something that helps the industry. Can you explain that? Yeah, you know, this is a, a classic example of the elections have consequences uh, model, right? Uh, Donald Trump becoming president after Barack Obama. Barack Obama used the FCC in an effective way to help protect a free and open Internet uh, and making sure companies couldn't block websites and charge extra for fast lanes and, and all the rest to keep it open uh, to everyone. And then Donald Trump comes in and, and puts his own appointments in and completely changes that on behalf of the industry. And it's such a small industry, as I explained, I had 12,983 people in my district uh, opposed the FCC change and no one was for it. So this is not a public uh, even debate. This is a debate among which big telecom company is going to make more money as they abuse this uh, rule. So, um, you know, recently Commissioner Clyburn, who had been there for a number of years, she's uh, going to be stepping down. And we had a great conversation with her at the Progressive Caucus on this. And luckily she's going to be a voice on the outside now with a lot of good inside information. But we need to make this be an agency that works for the people. Again, it's certainly not doing that now. Uh, yeah, I'm in. Norma in Montgomery, Alabama. You're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Hi, Dr. Tom. Um, Congressman Pocan, I was watching the uh, dog and pony show that Netanyahu, however you say his name, was putting on for Trump. And then I'm sitting there watching Trump in front of West Point, and he can't even name all the branches of the military. He can't, I guess he's never heard of the Merchant Marines. And I'm sitting there watching this, and I'm wondering, do we hear the beating of war drums? And is Congress going to go along with this? How many people in Congress and the Senate have dual citizenship, and where does the loyalty lie? Are you talking specifically in the Middle East or, Norma, or more broadly? I'm talking about um, are we going to obey Israel and attack Iran, or are we going to obey Saudi Arabia and attack Iran? Uh, yeah, yeah, gotcha, gotcha. And, and what you just mentioned, I mean, is, is part of the problem, right? Uh, Saudi Arabia has been very close to uh, Donald Trump, um, both for his business dealings before being to Congress, and, and now um, Israel Netanyahu, uh, who is having his own problems in his country, uh, has been close to President Trump for whatever reasons. And I, I would also argue Donald Trump doesn't have a clue of what's going on in the Middle East. He put his son-in-law in charge, but that certainly hasn't fixed anything. So, you know, a lot of us have concerns. I mean, on this Iran deal, if, if we uh, wind up taking the rhetoric from Netanyahu, not from the Israeli people, but from Netanyahu, and, and do something to change that agreement, we are setting ourselves up to either have nuclear weapons in the region or having uh, ourselves slip into further altercations. And um, and I would also argue, if I can, Tom, just a little leniency on this, you know, we need to do stand up more about Gaza than we have. Um, you know, recently, uh, three of us who were denied access two years ago this month 
uh, wrote to the Israel um, ambassador and asked for permission. We want to go into Gaza. The last person and I know of in Congress that was there was Keith Ellison. It's been at least six or so years. To imagine there's two million people that no member of Congress, with all the money that we put into the Middle East and into Israel, aren't allowed to go in and see the conditions for ourselves, to see how the money is working or not working, is pretty outrageous. And um, I think we need to have much better, smarter thinking uh, about how we deal with the Middle East, and Donald Trump has not shown any indication to do that. Charles in Augusta County, Virginia. You are on the air with Congressman Pocan. Yes, Congressman Pocan. Um, I'm Charles Smith. Uh, I, I'm over in the Shenandoah Valley. I install satellite dishes and um, TV antennas for people in rural areas to get TV, Internet, and so forth. Right now, I just learned about this FCC repack that's going on where they're taking all of the RF frequencies above 36 and giving those to the telephone industry, the cell phone industry. So is this an effort by the FCC to get rid of off-air TV or everyone's going to go to satellite or, uh, or cable? I know um, the answer to that. You do? I, yeah. Go ahead, Tom, and then I can uh, offer something extra on that, but I don't have the specific answer to his question. Yeah, I'm on the board of uh, Vocal, which is a charity that uh, you know we distribute money to, to, to groups for good works, and, and we make our money from leasing bandwidth to Sprint. <laughs> So I'm real familiar with this, I think. Um, there's there's a fair amount of TV frequencies that broadly are not being used for TV, the, uh, and a lot of this is in the educational broadcast band area. And the, the companies or organizations that hold that frequency, like the Catholic Church is a big one in Chicago, for example, uh, and our group, um, sublease that, that bandwidth to telephone companies that they're using for, for uh, and that's how we get the money to distribute to progressive groups. Um, there is push, there's a push to basically uh, cut all those groups out of the loop and simply redefine that bandwidth as TV, as telephone bandwidth rather than TV bandwidth. So that's, that's what I know about. And let me ask this if I can, Tom. Um, so there's also been a push to take some of the low-wave bandwidth and try to get it to rural Internet access and to inner-city Internet access. Is right. this a separate move than that? Yeah. Yeah, that's a whole okay. separate thing. Yeah, because the other move that you know we're looking at, Charles, also is, and I'm in the school of, of throw all the spaghetti on the wall and let's see what sticks when it is trying to get broadband out there, is they're looking at some of the low, um, bro the low uh, wave uh, emergency channel and other stuff that's not even used uh, that you can actually now provide in some rural areas much more affordably broadband, high-speed broadband. Right. And uh, Microsoft is, is one of the companies that's in some development on that. They admit their goal is just to get everyone in the cloud. My goal is to make sure that everyone in my rural areas has the same access to do their homework and run a business as the people in my urban areas. And uh, that's not, I don't think, part of the repackaging, although there is an effort to try to get uh, some changes on that that may take uh, official recognition. Yeah, there is no effort, though, to take down over-the-air TV. There is space between the channels on over-the-air TV where uh, there's discussion about using that space. In different, yeah. And there's a big space between channels, I think it's six and seven, that has yeah. been used for a long time. Ham radio operators, for example, that's the, uh, the six-meter band. But anyhow, uh, back to our callers here. Uh, Patricia in Portage, Wisconsin. You're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Hi. Um, I write a living wildlife column for the Capital Times newspaper out of Madison, and I, would, I am lobbying you to put add in biodiversity um, destruction in, in with climate change as on the progressive democratic platform because... People, part of, of the responsibility of legislators is to lead on issues that the public doesn't understand are critical to their survival. And even the Vatican met in February 2017 and pronounced biodiversity destruction. Two-thirds of wildlife gone in 50 years is a panic on this planet, and it's not being addressed. And I think the, the Democratic party has to be bold and part of that boldness is leading on issues that the public is virtually ignorant that that um, are important and part of that is taking our federal and state agencies away from hunting and trapping licenses funding them and putting them into general public funding thoughts congressman yeah, so uh, Patricia, I, I think the point you make is um, good, and uh, if it's not in 
implied, um, it, it, at least it's implied if not fully stated, that obviously biodiversity is an important part when you talk about climate change. So I appreciate the words you're saying, and maybe we just have to be uh, making sure that it, it's fully included in, in as we talk about it, because uh, the impacts of, of losing biodiversity is more than just losing um, species, but it's all the connectivity and what that means in many other uh, areas and what that means um, so, so it should be something that's ranked higher, and uh, I, I certainly appreciate what you're saying. Tim in Utica, Michigan. Hey, Tim, thanks for listening to SiriusXM here on the air with Congressman Pocan. Yes, good afternoon, gentlemen. I was just wondering if the congressman, during one of their discussions <clears throat> on the floor, would ask his fellow congressmen, primarily Jim Jordan and Mark Meadows, why are they supporting the Russians over our Justice Department? And our FBI. You're talking about the proposed impeachment of uh, Deputy AG uh, uh, Rod Rosenstein? Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Well, not only that, they've been going after Mueller and the entire FBI hierarchy, sure. saying sure. that, you know, there's the deep seated uh, black commission or whatever they call it. Yeah. Well, let's get, yeah, let's get Congressman Pokey's um, thoughts. Clearly, Ronald Reagan would be turning over in his grave, I think, uh, you know, to see people who call themselves conservatives acting like there are. I mean, I think they use this as a means to their ends. You know, the ends are that they're trying to uh, kind of dismantle the federal government, and uh, they're just going to take advantage of any opportunity to do so. And if uh, they think they have their hooks in Donald Trump to get him to do some things, and uh, he's going to be slowed down by this investigation, they're going to try to slow down or get rid of the investigation. So it's not even that they care, which is really sad, right, that uh, another country might be interfering with your elections uh, at the level they are, and yet what they're really concerned about is dismantling the federal government, and they'll do anything to get there. And, and that's just a sad statement of where their party is today, Tim. Yeah, party party above above country, really, Yeah, is, absolutely. is what it seems like we've, we've come to, which is really, really tragic. Congressman Mark Pocan, it's Middays with Mark on the Tom Hartman program, taking your calls for the hour. He represents the 2nd District of Wisconsin. His website is pocan.house.gov. He's the co-chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus, and you can tweet him at rep, at rep Mark Pocan as a representative. Rep Mark Pocan. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archive. And all of that is spelled just as you might think, R-E-P-M-A-R-K-P-O-C-A-N. Drop him, drop him a hello on Twitter. We'll be right back. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Welcome back to the second hour of our program. There's a real interesting uh, conversation that's been started by a guy named Robert Hans uh, Robin Hansen. Uh, Robin works uh, at the uh, Mercatus or Mercantor or whatever you call it uh, center at George Mason University, the, uh, the group that is uh, largely funded by the Koch brothers. He's a libertarian economist. And he raises the question, I'm reading his blog here, uh, his most recent post, this is from uh, yesterday, is titled A Pullable Thread of the Social Fabric. And he mentions uh, the incels, the involuntarily celibate people. And he compares them to liberals. <laughs> and he says, uh, while, while the two groups focus on different axes of inequality, they each organize to induce envy and identity with a deprived status. And what he's talking about with regard to liberals is, hey, there's poor people. And they're, and they're not getting any money from our rich people, and therefore we need to take money from rich people in the form of taxes, which Robin uh, Hansen considers violence, as do the Koch brothers, and give that to poor people so that they can have health care and housing and things. Uh, so he's, he, so anyhow, back to what he says. They each organize to induce envy and identity with a deprived status to hint at the possibility of violence. Obviously, the possibility of violence in the case of liberals is if you don't give us your taxes, we will put you in prison and to lobby for, quote, redistribution. And then he goes on to say that this is proof that policy can, in fact, influence sexual inequalities. Talking about ancient societies, he says most ancient societies had pol policies that influenced the redistribution of sex. And this is proof that policy can, in, in fact, induce, in, influence sexual inequality. Many people cared about this kind of inequality. You may think you have good moral arguments why such policies are bad, but as with income inequality, you should at least admit that people who feel envious and empowered to push policy may not be much influenced by your moral arguments. Uh, his, his argument specifically, and uh, I've got another one of his blog posts here where he uh, lays it out, is that, uh, you know, basically 
unattractive women should be forced to have sex with unattractive men. And this, this is I mean, this, the, one proposed policy. This, this is not specifically from Robin Hanson. He's, he's blogging about it. Uh, is, uh, this is from Josh Marshall. Uh, this anger at women the, from these involuntarily celibate men who believe they are sexually unappealing and as they are, and yet nonetheless refuse to have sex with them, uh, the, the women refuse to have sex with them. One proposed policy is to have the government assign each person a sexual market value. That's what Hanson is talking about here. People can only have sex with people of their own value. And for women, the more partners they have, the further their market value number falls, sort of big data of slut shaming. And uh, the more sexual, so basically the more sexually active a woman becomes, the greater an obligation she incurs to have sex with the least sexually appealing men. And the only way to up her score, in other words, to get out of having sex with these unattractive men, is through exercise to make herself more attractive. So uh, he says, alternating bouts of service, servicing sexually enraged losers and logging nonstop hours at the gym. This is, this is uh, the idea for, for women, apparently, and, and Professor Hansen uh, here talking about this at, at some length. Uh, he's got another blog post. It's called Food Versus Sex Charity. And uh, he says, uh, well, before I go into all this, let's get, uh, let's get another libertarian on to see what they think of this. Charles Sauer, libertarian economist, president of the Market Institute, author of the new book, Profit Motive, What Drives the Things We Do. Marketinstitute.org is the website. You can tweet him at Charles Sauer, S-A-U-E-R. Uh, Charles, welcome back to the program. Thanks for having me on. So uh, Professor Hansen is arguing that uh, it is possible to have a marketplace for sex. Uh, defined by government policy and uh, doesn't come right out and embrace it, but uh, certainly embraces the concept and says that it, it has been the case in previous societies. Uh, really? Well, this is just academic exploration. And the worst part here is the pushback on this has been the left's renunciation or moving away from academic freedom to think. And if you read these blog posts, you won't come away with most of the talking points you just came away with. First off, the title of the blog is called Overcoming Bias. It's an economic blog. And in this case in particular, he's talking about the horrific incident in Toronto where an incel mowed down people on a sidewalk. And this, this story came to light. And so it's and in San Bernardino, I, I think he mentioned, I think it's something that he mentions in his blog, but he hadn't heard of this group before. And if you look into it, the incels are the ones that proposed um, providing some sort of uh, a numeric number for attractiveness. And so he looked into this because if you read his blog, I mean, I think it makes perfect sense that the incels argument and the liberals argument for income equality seem to be the same. If a business is successful, a liberal moves them down on their chain and they have to hire more people in a liberal's mind. That's the same argument that Incel makes. It's the same argument I've heard you make on here before. So here's, what's, here's what uh, Scott uh, or, or what Robin Hansen says. This is from his blog post. Uh, this is his blog titled Food Versus Sex Charity. And he talks about, uh, you know, the, the problem of a man wanting food because he's hungry versus a man wanting sex because he's horny. And he says, even, even then, we treat food and sex differently. When we give food aid, we don't just give rice and beans to keep people from starving. We give them enough food to have a moderately tasty diet. He's talking about food stamps. He says, we do nothing remotely similar to sex. For me, the obvious answer is that our concern about inequality is not very general. Compared to inequality and in access to foods, uh, to food, humans are just not that concerned about sexual inequality, especially for men, poor men. Presumably for our ancestors, the gene pool of a tribe could benefit from equalizing food in ways that it could not benefit by equalizing sex. Uh, is, that, is that the counter-argument that he's making here? No, this is a professor thinking out loud on his blog. You're allowed to push back. You're, and he's also a, a type of professor that he has books out there. He's a futurist. He thinks in the future. I've actually hosted him. Um, at my group Prosperity Caucus several different times, and he's one of the top experts on what's going to happen when AI be evolves and becomes a more a part of our society. What does that economy look like? Robin Hanser is a, a thinker, so he hears what's going on in the public, he hears the conversations, and he takes that and moves it into an economic argument so that we can actually think about it in some sort of way where we might be able to rationally talk about it. Okay. The he also, he also talks about inequality. You can't talk about it rationally. He you also talks about you know, one possible solution to this is something he calls gentle rape. 
He says, imagine a woman was drugged into unconsciousness and then gently raped so that she suffered no noticeable physical harm nor any memory of the event. And the rapist tried to keep the event secret. He says, most farming societies did this. A colleague of mine says, uh, suggest this is gender bias, pure and simple. Women seem feminist and male chivalrous, but right, by railing against rape, no one looks good complaining about cuckoldry. Um, he seems to be very upset about uh, women who have affairs. He says, we all know, and I'm quoting him now, we all know that women tend to be more expressive about their complaints. You can't beat them for wailing and gnashing of teeth. Really? Yep. It, well, so here's do you, the deal. Do you endorse that? If you ask Robin Hansen if he agrees with the way that you just portrayed those comments, He's going to say no. He was proposing, he was talking about what's happened in the past. He was proposing economic ideas versus what's happening. Let's compare this to the way that the liberals are. We have Joy Reid from MSNBC who just claimed a hack in the fact that she didn't say actual hate speech against somebody and ran away with it. Again, this is the professor. I don't agree with uh, the policy solutions he's talking about. I think they're all. I don't think he's claiming a hack. Time. So, so direct question, Charles, what is the, what is the, uh, uh, you know, what is the libertarian solution to the problem of these unattractive young men who are willing to kill people uh, over their outrage that they're not getting sex? Psychologist, there, there's no, there's no market solution to this unless maybe, maybe you could um, uh, allow uh, and legalize prostitution. Now. That might be the uh, libertarian. But then, they, then these guys, I mean, you know, prostitution is widely available. Uh, it was certainly available to the San Bernardino shooter and to the, and to the Toronto uh, car killer. Uh, you know, but they might argue that it is uh, demeaning to them to have to pay for sex or that they but, simply can't afford to pay for sex. But, but look, let's look at the way that you're framing this question. The way that you're framing this question is ignoring the fact that Robin Hanson is a professor. He's an academic that talks about economic policy. What you're trying to do is shut an academic down from talking about policy. That's no, I'm trying to discuss the doing. policy that he brought up. No, I'm not, he, I haven't, well, he's thinking, you have not heard not me say one, that on you have not oil. heard me use one adjective to describe Robin Hanson. I'm serious. You're portraying his thoughts, and you, you have been saying when you're quoting him, you've been light when you're quoting the, the incels versus him, but the fact is is that an academic should be able to put thoughts out on I the agree. Internet as long as they don't act on them. He's not up on – Robin Hansen isn't somebody up on Capitol Hill pursuing these policies. He's somebody that is looking no, but at they, it. But we have, oh, real, we have a very real – you know, but we have a very real problem with now we've had two people on this continent who have murdered a bunch of people, principally women – because they are uh, upset that they are involuntarily celibate, that they are still virgins, and, they're, they're, and no woman has run up to them and say, hey, let's have sex, and they're very upset about this. I guess neither one of us, uh, Charles, have a, have a solution to this problem. Charles Sauer, okay. libertarian economist and president of the Market Institute, his new book, Profit Motive, uh, marketinstitute.org. Thanks, Charles. This is the Tom Hartman Program. We'll be back. You got a solution to this problem? Or maybe we just need to, like, take seriously putting these guys in prison. Hey, I've got to tell you about the world's best chair. Most of us spend over 2,000 hours a year sitting in our office chairs. And if you have back problems or trouble concentrating throughout the day, there's a simple reason. You're sitting in the wrong chair. Take your chair, your style, and your productivity to the next level with an X chair. The X chair's unique anthropomorphic design and dynamic variable lumbar support cradle your body in a way you need to feel to believe. And a more comfortable posture means better concentration and much higher productivity. In fact, if you're a business owner, there's no better way to reward your top performers than giving them an X chair. And the X chair's sleek, modern style will upgrade the entire look of your office. Give yourself and your staff the gift that pays dividends five days a week, year round. Feel and see the X chair difference by going to xchairtom.com right now. That's the letter X, chair, Tom, T-H-O-M, Dot com or call 1-844-4X-CHAIR. If you're not truly thrilled by the look and feel after 30 days, return it for a full refund. Order today and save 100 bucks and get free shipping. If you go to xchairtom.com right now and enter the code TOM, T-H-O-M, you get a free foot rest. That's xchairtom.com or call 1-844-X-CHAIR. We have one here. We love it. xchairtom.com. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Welcome back to the second hour of our program. 
there's a real interesting uh, conversation that's been started by a guy named Robert Hans uh, Robin Hansen. Uh, Robin works uh, at the uh, Mercatus or Mercantor or whatever you call it uh, center at George Mason University, the uh, the group that is uh, largely funded by the Koch brothers. He's a libertarian economist, and he raises the question. I'm reading his blog here. Uh, his most recent post, this is from uh, yesterday, is titled A Pullable Thread of the Social Fabric. And he mentions uh, the incels, the involuntarily celibate people. And he compares them to liberals. <laughs> and he says, uh, while, while the two groups focus on different axes of inequality, they each organize to induce envy and identity with a deprived status. And what he's talking about with regard to liberals is, hey, there's poor people. And they're, and they're not getting any money from our rich people, and therefore we need to take money from rich people in the form of taxes, which Robin uh, Hansen considers violence, as do the Koch brothers, and give that to poor people so that they can have health care and housing and things. Uh, so he's, he, so anyhow, back to what he says. They each organize to induce envy and identity with a deprived status to hint at the possibility of violence. Obviously, the possibility of violence in the case of liberals is if you don't give us your taxes, we will put you in prison and to lobby for, quote, redistribution. And then he goes on to say that this is proof that policy can, in fact, influence sexual inequality. He's talking about ancient societies. He says most ancient societies had pol policies that influenced the redistribution of sex. And this is proof that policy can, in, in fact, induce, in, influence sexual inequality. Many people cared about this kind of inequality. You may think you have good moral arguments why such policies are bad, but as with income inequality, you should at least admit that people who feel envious and empowered to push policy may not be much influenced by your moral arguments. Uh, his, his argument specifically, and uh, I've got another one of his blog posts here where he uh, lays it out, is that uh, you know basically unattractive women should be forced to have sex with un unattractive men. And this, this is I mean, this, the, one proposed policy. This, this is not specifically from Robin Hansen. He's, he's blogging about it. Uh, is, uh, this is from Josh Marshall. Uh, this anger at women the, from these involuntarily celibate men who believe they are sexually unappealing and as they are, and yet nonetheless refuse to have sex with them. Uh, the, the women refuse to have sex with them. One proposed policy is to have the government assign each person a sexual market value. That's what Hansen is talking about here. People can only have sex with people of their own value. And for women, the more partners they have, the further their market value number falls, sort of big data of slut shaming. And uh, the more sexual, so basically the more sexually active a woman becomes, the greater an obligation she incurs to have sex with the least sexually appealing men. And the only way to up her score, in other words, to get out of having sex with these unattractive men, is through exercise to make herself more attractive. So uh, he says, alternating bouts of service, servicing sexually enraged losers and logging nonstop hours at the gym. This is, this is uh, the idea for, for women, apparently, and, and Professor Hansen uh, here talking about this at, at some length. Uh, he's got another blog post. It's called Food Versus Sex Charity. And uh, he says, uh, well, before I go into all this, let's get, uh, let's get another libertarian on to see what they think of this. Charles Sauer, libertarian economist, president of the Market Institute, author of the new book, Profit Motive, What Drives the Things We Do. Marketinstitute.org is the website. You can tweet him at Charles Sauer, S-A-U-E-R. Uh, Charles, welcome back to the program. Thanks for having me on. So uh, Professor Hansen is arguing that uh, it is possible to have a marketplace for sex. Uh, defined by government policy and uh, doesn't come right out and embrace it, but uh, certainly embraces the concept and says that it, it has been the case in previous societies. Uh, really? Well, this is just academic exploration. And the worst part here is the pushback on this has been the left's renunciation or moving away from academic freedom to think. And if you read these blog posts, you won't come away with most of the talking points you just came away with. First off, the title of the blog is called Overcoming Bias. It's an economic blog. And in this case in particular, he's talking about the horrific incident in Toronto where an incel mowed down people on a sidewalk. And this, this story came to light. And so it's and in San Bernardino, I, I think he mentions I think it's something that he mentions in his blog, but he hadn't heard of this group before. And if you look into it, the incels are the ones that proposed um, providing some sort of uh, a numeric number for attractiveness. And so he looked into this because if you read his blog, I mean, 
I think it makes perfect sense that the Intel's argument and the liberals' argument for income equality seem to be the same. If a business is successful, a liberal moves them down on their chain, and they have to hire more people in the liberal's mind. That's the same argument that Intel makes. It's the same argument I've heard you make on here before. So here's, what's, here's what uh, Scott uh, or what Robin Hansen says. This is from his blog post. Uh, this is his blog titled Food Versus Sex Charity, and he talks about, uh, you know, the the problem of a man wanting food because he's hungry versus a man wanting sex because he's horny. And he says, even even then, we treat food and sex differently. When we give food aid, we don't just give rice and beans to keep people from starving. We give them enough food to have a moderately tasty diet. He's talking about food stamps. He says, we do nothing remotely similar to sex. For me, the obvious answer is that our concern about inequality is not very general. Compared to inequality in access to foods, uh, to food, humans are just not that concerned about sexual inequality, especially for men, poor men. Presumably for our ancestors, the gene pool of a tribe could benefit from equalizing food in ways that it could not benefit by equalizing sex. Uh, is, that, is that the counter-argument that he's making here? No, this is a professor thinking out loud on his blog, you're allowed to push back. You're, and he's also a, a type of professor that he has books out there. He's a futurist. He thinks in the future. I've actually hosted him um, at my group Prosperity Caucus several different times, and he's one of the top experts on what's going to happen when AI be- evolves and becomes a more a part of our society. What does that economy look like? Robin Hanser is a, a thinker, so he hears what's going on in the public. He hears the conversation. And he takes that and moves it into an economic argument so that we can actually think about it in some sort of way where we might be able to rationally talk about it. Okay. He also, he also talks about inequality. You can't talk about it rationally. He also talks about, you know, one possible solution to this is something he calls gentle rape. He says, imagine a woman was drugged into unconsciousness and then gently raped so that she suffered no noticeable physical harm nor any memory of the event. And the rapist tried to keep the event secret. He says, most farming societies did this. A colleague of mine uh, suggests this is gender bias, pure and simple. Women seem feminist and male chivalrous, but by railing against rape, no one looks good complaining about cuckoldry. Um, He seems to be very upset about uh, women who have affairs. He says, we all know, and I'm quoting him now, we all know that women tend to be more expressive about their complaints. You can't beat them for wailing and gnashing of teeth. Really? Yep. Well, so here's the deal. Do you endorse that? If you ask Robin Hanson if he agrees with the way that you just portrayed those comments, he's going to say no. He was proposing, he was talking about what's happened in the past. He was proposing economic ideas versus what's happening. Let's compare this to the way that the liberals are. We have Joy Reid from MSNBC who just claimed a hack in the fact that she didn't say actual hate speech against somebody and ran away with it. Again, this is a professor. I don't agree with uh, the policy solutions he's talking about. I think they're all. I don't think he's claiming a hack. Time. So, so direct question, Charles. What is the what is the uh, uh, you know what is the libertarian solution to the problem of these unattractive young men who are willing to kill people uh, over their outrage that they're not getting sex? Psychologist. There, there's no. There's no market solution to this uh, unless maybe maybe you could um, uh, allow uh, and legalize prostitution. That that might be the uh, libertarian. But then they, then these guys, I mean, you know, prostitution is widely available. Uh, it was certainly available to the San Bernardino shooter and to the and to the Toronto uh, car killer. Uh, you know, but they might argue that it is uh, demeaning to them to have to pay for sex or that they but, simply can't afford to pay for sex. But look, let's look at the way that you're framing this question. The way that you're framing this question is ignoring the fact that Robin Hansen is a professor. He's an academic that talks about economic policy. What you're trying to do is shut an academic down from talking about policy. That's no, I'm trying to discuss the policy doing. that he brought up. You have not heard me say one. You have not heard me use one adjective to describe Robin Hansen. I'm you're, serious. You're portraying his thoughts, and you, you have been saying when you're quoting him, you've been like when you're quoting the, the incels versus him, but the fact is is that an academic should be able to put thoughts out on the I Internet agree. as I long agree. as they don't act on them. He's not up on—Robin Hansen isn't somebody up on Capitol Hill pursuing these policies. He's somebody that is looking no, but at they, it they, but we have oh, a very real we have a you know, but we have a very real problem with now we've had two people on this continent who have murdered a bunch of people, principally women, 
because they are uh, upset that they are involuntarily celibate, that they are still virgins, and, they're, they're, and no woman has run up to them and say, hey, let's have sex, and they're very upset about this. I guess neither one of us, uh, Charles, have a, have a solution to this problem. Charles Sauer, okay. libertarian economist and president of the Market Institute, his new book, Profit Motive, uh, marketinstitute.org. Thanks, Charles. This is the Tom Hartman Program. We'll be back. You got a solution to this problem? Or maybe we just need to, like, take seriously putting these guys in prison. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Taking back the mainstream media three hours a day, five days a week. Tom Hartman here with you. And on the line with us, Mimi Kennedy, the actress, activist, writer, board chair with Progressive Democrats of America, uh, pdamerica.org, star of the hit series Mom on CBS. pdamerica.org, the uh, website, and you can tweet Mimi at Mimi Kennedy LA, as in Los Angeles. Uh, Mimi, welcome back to the program. It's great to be here, Tom. Yeah. It is always great having you on. So there is a lawsuit going on in Ohio that echoes uh, previous lawsuits in Arizona and Alabama. And I want to get to those, too. Uh, tell me what the essence of this is. The essence of it is to get the Ohio counties that have pictures of the paper ballot to stop destroying those pictures. Okay, so so my, my understanding of how this works is you you fill out the little you fill in the little circles on the paper ballots, and they run them through the scanners, and those scanners then both count uh, who voted for whom, and they take a picture of each one of those ballots, so that That's in right. the event of and uh, because the paper ballots are typically destroyed, do I have this right? And therefore these ballot images can be used for an audit. Do I have that right? That's essentially right. In Ohio, when activists won a court case to check out the Carrie Bush paper ballot, it was a 2004 election. Out, it took so long, the county, 55 of them, had destroyed the paper ballot. The ballot images are available right, right after Election Day. So, so this is an audit trail that a lot of us didn't even realize was built into these scanners. And uh, now, now here we have Alabama. When Alabama and Arizona were sued by Audit USA in 2017 last year, um, courts ruled in both cases that they had to preserve the ballot images. But then in Alabama, the Republican Secretary of State, John Merrill, uh, went to the Supreme Court and said, we don't want to have to keep the ballot images. Uh, you know, and, this, and the Supreme Court issued a stay on that lower judge's ruling. Why on earth would Republican election officials not want there to be an audit trail to the voting machines? I don't get this. <laughs> right. Well, that's what's so important about all this, which finally, I think, we've opened up the snake pit. Oh, look, there's snakes here. Let's, let's get them out so they don't bite people and kill them. And some people are going, no, 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 keep them there. This, I, uh, one of the best parts of this strategy of getting valid images, making them preserved, and then having the public record request be the way to access them to give the public the right to audit their elections, that's according to John Keller, New York State, where they made that the law, is that when you find a reluctant secretary of state or a reluctant county, well, you know you might have a problem there, and it's time for citizen teams to go in there and start watching how they count the votes and asking questions. In an ideal world, and with the Russian blaming for a hack, because everybody knows cybersecurity is sort of non-existent when stakes are really high. With the Russian fear, almost everybody is on board going, oh, we need to audit our elections. What if they're hacked or manipulated? And John Brakey of Audit Arizona found years ago there are these things called ballot images, and more and more states have them, yeah. and they're just not using them. And counties have been destroying them in the dark, and we're shining a light. Now, really with with the that. you know when when the when John Kerry uh, lost Ohio by just a little over a hundred thousand votes, and there were almost two hundred thousand um, uh, provisional ballots that had not even mm -hmm. been opened or counted, and uh, and you know people went in and said, uh, wait a minute, we want to see the ballot images for the for the non-provisional ballots for the actual votes that were counted. We'd like to see some proof of this. That election, by the way. Uh, those the the votes were not counted in Ohio. They were counted in Kentucky, was it? 
I think so. I don't know all the details of that. Ballot images were not the issue in that Lincoln County case that Cliff Arnebeck was a lawyer for. They wanted to see the paper ballots, as far as I know. Right. What happened? And, the, and they, they got the right from the court. But by the time they got the right from the court, out of 88 counties in Ohio, 55 had destroyed their paper ballots. Right, and, I mean, and nobody was, and nobody knew that they could ask for the ballot images. We didn't even know they existed yeah, exactly. at that point in time. So, uh, so where I was going with this, Mimi, is that under the circumstances of of the the lawsuit in Ohio in 2004, if the state had preserved the physical ballot, and if Cliff and his friends wanted to go in and audit them, they'd have to go in and, and walk out with a truckload full of paper. And, and transport that truck full, load full of paper around the country. You know, if they had, like, say, a thousand people who said, okay, I'll take, you know, a hundred of them and I'll count them and we'll crowdsource this thing, it would have involved massive amounts of shipping and paper moving and logistics. But with ballot images, these are digital files. The state of Ohio could simply say to, to, the law, to Cliff Arnebeck, the, the lawyer who won the case, okay, here are, here are PDFs or digital images uh, or JPEGs or whatever format they're in. Here are the digital images for, you know, uh, 1.2 million votes, 1.2 million ballots, and give them to the activists. And the activists could easily develop software, the equivalent of kind of facial recognition, that reads those ballot images so that they could be counted on anybody's laptop. And we could have a real uh, double check of the election in 24 hours, presumably. And this could be done anywhere in the country. Uh, why are we not doing this? Well, there's two reasons. One, nobody knew there were ballot images, and I don't think 04 in Ohio, the equipment made ballot images. Uh, maybe the BF200 did. But uh, the other reason is that people don't want the public verifying their elections. But the public has woken up and goes, yes, we want to. You mean no, Republicans want don't to. want the public verifying their elections? Well, uh, some Republicans are a little worried about hackability and manipulation, and I like to think that might be because they know something about what operatives have been doing yeah. on their side for a while. And I'm not saying the Democrats have never manipulated an election either, but I am saying that it's a nonpartisan effort at this point, and I think Democrats should be entirely behind it and all progressives because it's for the voters. It's for the public. This is verifiability for 2018, for sure. And at Audit Arizona, there's a list of the states and the counties that have this equipment. And if you see your county there, go in and say, we want to preserve the ballot images. John Brady has done this in Arizona. It's very expensive, but he got on it early. Arizona, Alabama, I think that's one reason Doug Jones might have won. They scared the bejesus out of those people. And those county election officials might have been preserving ballot images, even though their secretary of state didn't want them to. And Ohio now. Ohio in 2016, Patrakis found them turning off the printer that stamped the paper ballots with the same identifying number as the ballot in the chat. So there's a lot of ways, whack-a-mole, that people have fought having these ballot images there as an audit trail and a public verification. But they're now getting the court to say, absolutely, these are election records. Absolutely, you can't destroy them. Secretary of State, it's on you. You tell your counties, don't destroy these things. Right. New York State has it locked up. They did it. And Doug Kellner has an interesting YouTube explanation where he goes, Paper, voter verified paper audit trail is something we've been calling for for a long time. More and more states have it, but it doesn't mean anything unless you do an audit. And right. it's been so impossible to get your hands on the paper ballots. Your scenario where the trucks go everywhere, you couldn't take the paper ballots out of the election office. They have to be counted there by staff, and the county goes, that'll be $2 million. But with the paper ballot images, you can do what you described, Tom, right. and that's why. So is oh, so has this lawsuit against Ohio been adjudicated or is it just starting? And what is John Kasich's position on this? He's positioning himself to run for president in 2020. He's the governor of Ohio. Is is he gung ho for uh, you know uh, election transparency or is he one of the Republicans who doesn't want us to be able to see how we voted? Crickets. Crickets Cricket. out of John Kasich. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. This has been a grassroots action, and what's nice is we're not hearing crickets from the judges in the court. Yeah. 
Well, that's a good thing. So it'll filter up. That's, that's a very good thing. Congress, uh, Congress. Uh, I <laughs> Indeed. Mimi Kennedy, uh, actor, activist, writer, board chair, Progressive Democrats of America, the website pdamerica.org. She's the star of the hit series Mom on CBS. And uh, you can tweet her at Mimi Kennedy LA. And, and of course, at PD America. Mimi, thank you so much. Thanks, Tom. Always great talking with you. We'll be right back. It's talk media for the sane among us speaking the truths the multinational corporations would really rather you didn't know all about. Gordon in Williamsport, Ohio. Hey, Gordon, what's on your mind? Hey, how you doing? Good. Hey, uh, your presentation of, of, of corrections work is not far off. Uh, I've been in corrections for 25 years. I'm retired now. I've been retired for about 10 years. But years ago, the, day, the mailroom come up with a, a company that you had to the family had to send to the money to buy a TV, a book, or anything, and then they went through it, and it was like clear plastic as far as the TV to, to see if there was any contraband coming in. Mm -hmm. But here, here's the other aspect of it. When uh, Taft was in there, he authorized uh, certain companies to come in from out of the state to put plumbing in these correction facilities. And you could not go out to Lowe's to buy a, a turn-on, turn-off faucet. Mm -hmm. You had to go through their company. Mm. To, and, and the prices were outrageous. Yeah. So basically so, it was a government contractor who had the sweetheart deal that anything that goes into a prison has to go through them first and they get to mark it up. Bingo. Yeah. You paid into a, a, a certain book that the uh, all the uh, business operations – through the state of Ohio, far as corrections, paid into, and they would underbid everybody else. Amazing. And Gordon, they, got the, they, they got it. Gordon, as a, as, a former, as a former corrections officer, I'm wondering if you could comment on the uh, charge that has been made, that I made in the last segment, that a lot of the drugs in our, in our prisons are brought into our prisons by corrections officers. Bingo. That's another, that, that, yes, you are correct on that. Mm. And visitors. And visitors. They don't have the means. They don't have, yeah, the visitors. They don't have the means of, of and, and I've got certificates to show that I've, I've where I work, that I've caught certain things. So mm -hmm. I've got certificates. i got in writing. They, they, they come in with things. The, the saying around prisons in the state of Ohio is, is if you lose the drugs to keep the inmates calm and then everything, we lose control of the prison and the reason why is you got 100 officers 180 officers working a shift with about 3,500 inmates so so it actually works to the benefit of the corrections officers if if uh, your more violent inmates are sitting back in their cells stoned on heroin than uh, if they're uh, if they're sober and willing to start yeah. a fight that's bizarre. Leave me alone. Let me let, leave me alone. I'm in my corner. I'm not going to start no fight. I'm not going to cause no problem. You do your eight hours, punch out, and leave. Yeah. And if you cause problems, you're going to be taken off the shift, and you're going to be targeted. Amazing. Amazing. Gordon, thank you for sharing that perspective, uh, the perspective of a former corrections officer with us. I, I appreciate it. It's You, you speak not with an authority. Anything, anything to do with State of Ohio and corrections, I'll call you. Okay, Gordon, thank you very much. You, you speak with an authority that the rest of us lack. I appreciate it. Julie in Costa Mesa, California. Hey, Julie, what's up? Hey, Tom, I'm wondering, um, you know, I worked in the area of grants for quite a while at the University of California here, and there was a point where the National Science Foundation started introducing the STEM programs. Have you heard of those? Yeah, uh, science, technology, math, uh, engineering, and math. Is that STEM? Right. Yeah. Now, all of the all of all of the sciences are supposed to be included under the S, including physical, natural, and social sciences. Mm -hmm. But what you see going on everywhere is the systematic, what I call the systematic elimination of the social sciences when they offer these programs. And yet when Congress created the NSF as the kind of official research organ of the U.S., the National they Science Foundation. deliberately the social sciences. And it's like we're creating like a generation or two of people who aren't going to be savvy and uh, literate in social sciences 
And in the meantime, our we, the people, are being run over roughshod and, you know, we're being ignored economically and sociologically and anthropologically, destroying the waters sacred to the Indians. And the people aren't educated to know even what's happening. Yeah, yeah. And it's a, it's a crime. You're absolutely right. Julie, thank you for sharing that. Robin in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Hey, Robin, what's on your mind? I'm so grateful to get the call through. I just wanted to know if you could put a word in to some of the Democrats um, in their, their push for 2018, uh, the, those particular elections, that we need to talk about policy, that it's okay to, you know, dish Trump and everything. I'm all for that because of the things he's done. Um, personally, but I think that his policies are what's important. He is, and, and they're kind of going, going under the radar, and I really, really, really wish that, because a lot of Democrats, progressive Democrats, want them, want the Democrats to talk about that, to yeah. push that. Yeah, I, I, I absolutely agree, Robin, and, and, and there's a broad consensus in the Democratic Party around that. Uh, but well, I'll continue pushing it. Robin, thanks for listening to 1350 AM in Albuquerque. Harrison, listening on KBCS in Seattle, you have the last minute. Hey, appreciate it, Tom. Thank you. Hey, uh, the Korean unification, I'm curious what you think as far as a unified Korea to me seems like just an incredibly potent economic force. And to what extent would the United States not view that as a positive development. I, a, I doubt that you're going to see Korean unification. I think what you're going to see is a ratcheting down of the tensions and North Korea continuing as basically a, a crypto-fascist state uh, and South Korea continuing as they are. Um, but if there was unification, there'd be a massive supply of very cheap labor, which would uh, give a huge infusion, uh, a huge boost, I think, over the short term anyway, to South Korea's economy or at least their competitiveness in the world. Uh, to the extent that you know, we consider countries that have cheap labor to be competitive. But I, like I said, I think it's remote. Harrison, interesting question, though. You're thinking. I like it. Uh, thanks so much for the call. We'll be back tomorrow. In the meantime, don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. It doesn't work if we don't get involved. You, your friends, your family, your neighbors, your coworkers, get out there and get active. Wake some people up. Tell them about progressive media. Tell them about this show. Get out there, get active. Tag, you're it. We'll see you tomorrow. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.